welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we explore different perspectives on hypermobility conditions and various approaches to treating our symptoms and challenges to live more fulfilling lives. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not medical advice. Please consult with an appropriate provider before making any changes to your medical regimen. Today, our guest is Emily Rich, OT. Emily is a practicing occupational therapist, PhD student, and researcher, and she posts a lot of great content about her studies and her research on her Instagram page, which we will link to that and her website in the episode notes. Her interests lie in chronic conditions, including POTS, EDS, and related hypermobility conditions, and healthcare advocacy. Emily, hello, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's so fun to be here. Great to be speaking with you. Um, first and foremost, can you explain a little bit to us about what occupational therapy is and how you got interested in this practice in this profession? Yes, absolutely. So occupational therapy is a rehabilitation field and OTs work with people who have some sort of disruption to their life. So it could be an illness or disability, it could be in an accident or have a brain injury, whatever it is. Uh, to get back to those daily life functions to the fullest capacity that they can. So we talk about increasing independence, but that's not necessarily everyone's goal. It's really the idea of being able to fully take part in the areas of life that you want to. And so occupations are anything that occupies your time, like sleeping, driving, uh, cooking, attending school or your work. Um, bathing, dressing, playing sports, and spending time with friends. And um, I got interested in occupational therapy um, because I, I knew that I wanted to be in a helping profession. And I had observed several other disciplines and eventually got connected with an OT. And the reason why I fell in love with it was because we are really addressing what matters the most to the client or to the patient. So when a person comes in, my whole job is to, to help them in the ways that matter most to them. And it's really like a whole body approach to, to treatment. And so those are the reasons why I really loved occupational therapy. That's fascinating um, because I had been to occupational therapy and I always thought of it in the context of helping one with one's occupation, one's job. And so to hear that it's much broader than that, that, you know, anything that occupies your time, um, it's a much more expansive view. And uh, it's particularly interesting, I guess, in light of the relationship between OT and PT um, I guess, could you give us a little bit of an overview about how occupational therapy or OT um, differs at, or is um, similar to physical therapy? Um, what is the relationship there? Yes, that's a really common question. Um, so occupational therapists, I like to describe as everyday practical problem solvers of the world. So you can think about the things I described last, right, and how they address um, whole, how we can address whole life functioning. So for an example, um, when someone comes in for their initial evaluation with an occupational therapist, um, we're asking about what is your daily routine? What are successes and also challenges in your day-to-day -day life? And what things are the most important for you in terms of areas that you're not happy with? So our whole work is centered around what matters to the patient, um, how to empower them to get back to living life the way that they want to. Um, and so I love physical therapists. They are movement specialists and they understand all about how to rehabilitate, you know, specific body parts. Um, and you've had some excellent uh physical therapists on the podcast, I know. And um, so there, there is a lot of overlap, especially if a patient is only seeing occupational therapy or they're only seeing physical therapy, um, such as like in managing pain. We both do um, body mechanics uh, in hypermobility, looking at proprioception or body awareness and, and overall strength. Um, but in traditionally, occupational therapists have expertise in the upper extremities, especially the hands and wrists and elbows, shoulders. Um, so sometimes we kind of break the body up that way if they're seeing PT and OT. 
Um, but often physical therapists address these areas as well. It just depends on the patient's needs and who else is on their care team. That's very interesting as well, because I've heard that before too, that occupational therapists are generally for the top half of your body and that physical therapists are for the lower half of your body. (laughs) And that just never made a whole lot of sense to me, I guess, because for a long time I've, well, I've, I've noticed the complex interrelationship between all parts of our body. Mm -hmm. Um, An example that comes to mind is one time I got an acupuncture needle put into um, a trapezius muscle. um, So like by my shoulder and immediately a muscle near my calf released very dramatically. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, um, like within a second after, like it, it could have been a coincidence, but it it felt Mm -hmm. very linked. And then I heard this metaphor, and I can't remember where, I wish I could to credit the person, um, but I'll try to find it. I heard the description one time of the fashion net in our body being almost like an internal sweater, like an, I guess, not an exoskeleton, but an endoskeleton and not a skeleton, but like a kind of lacy web of connective tissue. And I've heard it described that like, if you think of a sweater and you pull one string, like say like you pull one of the strings from the shoulder, well, the whole garment gets misshapen. Mm-hmm. It can kind of react to that area that's been injured or overextended or whatever it may be. Um, so it, it's, I guess it's very interesting to me that divide and a lot of medical practice is very siloed in terms of looking at one body part or one symptom or one condition. And, um, and, I, and I've always just thought that a little bit well, in, in times, a lot of it, um, missing some bigger pictures. And, you know, especially when you're sort of treating different symptoms that are at odds with each other, and you're in this kind of whack-a-mole type practice. But I'm encouraged to hear, I guess it sounds like it's moving more towards, um, or, or maybe, I, maybe that's the question, do you think it's moving more towards a model where both physical and occupational therapists are maybe focused a bit on their half of the body, so to speak, but that they're, they are looking in a broader context um, at the whole body. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that your description of fascia, that was a beautiful, um, I think, imagery, you know, of, of how things are all connected. Like the hip is definitely connected to the shoulder. And even within, you know, the upper body, the shoulder is definitely connected to the hand in terms of function. And um, so I think that we are, we are all in some ways getting um, broader in terms of, you know, making sure we're addressing the big picture while we're also, you know, at many times becoming more specialized. Um, but occupational therapy actually started uh, during the war in the early 1900s. And the whole idea was to help people with what we now would call PTSD um, to, to basically do something um, to occupy their mind. And so the idea was they did a lot of crafts and basket weaving and leather making and all these things. And so I, that's kind of where the hand piece really developed. So, um, so for example, I might make someone a splint which is a very specific skill to be able to do. And so I think, you know, it's hard for, there are some physical therapists who specialize in hands as well, but um, sometimes it's good to have that, you know, specialized lens to, you know, for, for a certain part of the body. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it certainly has its advantages and there's obviously just so much complexity to the body that it, yeah. it makes sense on some level but then it's also good to be able to have practitioners who are able to take a step back and look at the whole person in context. And, you know, hopefully, ideally, we'll get to a day where we have kind of treatment teams that can coordinate with each other and yes. be more on the same page. Because a lot of patients with the conditions that you work with, EDS, hypermobility conditions, POTS, a lot of us end up getting, if not directly contradictory advice, although that's certainly happened. Um, just a- advice that um, s- seems hard to square altogether or seems disjointed in some way. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, hopefully we're moving more towards a model where we can have individual focus on specific problems, but also be able to see things in context. Yes. Um, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned how OT started um, after the war to deal with PTSD. That's very interesting and certainly like not how we think of it today we really think of 
PTSD being the realm of psychologists and psychiatrists at sort of as a, a cultural matter. But for a long time, I've wondered um, about alternate approaches um, because everyone's different and, you know, has mm-hmm. different complex needs. And I'm particularly interested in this concept of using basket weaving um, because one of the pain recommendations I got um, when I was first diagnosed was it was just a generalized pamphlet for people in pain. So it wasn't, you know, specific to EDS or anything, but one of the recommendations was to take up knitting, to take your mind off the pain. And I kind of scoffed at that. And I was like, well, my hands hurt all the time and lock up. And that would be, you know, it would be very distressing for me. And I, I used to do it as a kid, but even just holding a pen for short periods is difficult now. And so I'm interested though, like has any of those kind of crafting recommendations or things that you do with your hands, like basket weaving or knitting um, has, is any of that still in the practice or coming back or is that pretty much ancient history? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, especially the, the older um, OTs that are still in practice, I think they are better at using those kinds of things because they actually had courses on those crafts when they were in school. Um, and so younger therapists did not get that in school. Um, but for example, you know, I'll use um, card making as a something that we might do in our intervention because in the session with card making, we can practice with, you know, holding a, a pen, um, trying to modify the pen if we need to, figuring out your sitting position, your posture, what's your neck doing when you're looking down, um, those fine motor skills and strength needed to, you know, peel stickers off of paper or to use glue. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not as uh, I'm not as skilled at some of those traditional um, craft practices. Uh, some people still are, but definitely, you know, knitting is is still a hobby that a lot of um, even young people that I've seen have taken up. And so, um, with hypermobile hands, that can definitely be a challenge. Um, and so, that is something that we would look at. You know, whatever is challenging for the the patient. Whether I know anything about it or not, um, they're going to bring it into our session. For example, I had someone who played um, the uh, the viola, and she had hypermobility, and I knew nothing about that instrument or what she needed to do. But we found someone else that could consult with us and um, figured out how to change her positioning and help her to be able to have less pain, but still do you know the activity that she really wanted to do. So. We had music coming out of the OT room and uh, the, the PTs wondered what was going on, but it was pretty great. <laughs> That's so great. And I, I love to hear about those kind of alternate uses for occupational therapy, because like I said, I've thought of it kind of strictly in terms of productivity, like helping to be able to write, type, like um, do the activities of, you know, just a job better. But it's it's very encouraging to know that it's a broader perspective and you know, for somebody whose great love is playing an instrument, you know, learning how to do that in a way that's hopefully safer and healthier for them is huge. Um, Because I'm a firm believer in getting people informed about the nature of their condition, and then how they can, you know, then are empowered to make choices to Mm -hmm. um, hopefully not have to give up what they love, or if they do to be able to find something um, that can still work for them despite their limitations. So that's awesome. Yes, exactly. I'm with you. <laughs> so can you give us a little bit of a basic overview of how occupational therapy or OT can be helpful for patients with Ehlers-Danlos and other hypermobility conditions? Yeah, of course. So um, specifically for hypermobility or EDS, there's um, several challenges with function I think are relatively common, um, almost universal with people. Um, One of those would be persistent pain, you know, especially if they're coming to see me um, versus someone who might not have pain associated with their hypermobility. Um, Also fatigue and sleep difficulties and maybe some challenges with proprioception, like I mentioned, or um, feeling clumsy, kind of running into things, not feeling uh, coordinated. And so if we use those challenges and we, we say maybe... I'm treating like a someone who's like 35 year old woman and she's got young children and she's has hand pain from picking up her, you know, toddler over and over again. Thumb pain is really common. 
um, and she's not sleeping well and she's exhausted. So we would problem solve how to decrease her fatigue. So that might be using um, strategies of pacing throughout the day, um, simplifying tasks, using ergonomic principles to decrease the strain on her body, for example, when she picks up her, her toddler, and um, considering alternative ways to do things that, that might make it easier. So using a different devices or equipment. Um, and then we'd also look at her sleep, not just if she can sleep, uh, but for how long and what's the quality of her sleep like. A lot of people hit the bed and just, you know, pass out like a log from the fatigue. But I always ask, you know, are you really getting quality sleep? Um, when you wake up in the morning, do you feel refreshed? Uh, or the opposite feeling, some people are tired but wired. You know, they're wide awake at night, uh, but they're just exhausted all throughout the day, mm -hmm. which could be, you know, a nervous system that's more revved up and so they can't fall asleep. So we would use... Um, what we call sleep hygiene principles. And we'd look at um, her daily routine to see if we can, you know, improve her quality of sleep. Um, and then her pain will hopefully improve by targeting the fatigue and the sleep, but she's probably still going to have some level of pain. And so I would teach her um, joint protection strategies. So things like um, modifying the way that you do something so that you don't hyperextend or sublux. For example, when she picks up her toddler, we might, you know, figure out how to elevate the surface or maybe she goes down to the floor or um, maybe she wears a splint on her hand when she's picking them up. So we're trying to decrease the amount of strain on the joints. Um, or maybe she's cooking and she uses like a, a, a spoon that's larger, a wooden spoon, that would make it easier on her hand to be able to stir a bowl. Um, so those are a few ideas. And then she'd probably need a home program with um, stability exercises to um, help with muscle tone and protecting her joints with the awareness around her joints. And that's also related to that word proprioception or where's my body in space so um, I often have people do a couple of really short and simple exercises that take only a minute before they go into the kitchen so that they can help their shoulders and their hands to find their place and, and help their muscles to sort of wake up. So there's lots of other aspects to pain management. I could go on and on, but um, that's just a kind of simple uh, um, example of a typical patient. Yeah. Um uh, and it's so great to hear of your um, approach and how it's clear that you um, are listening and learning from the patient. What are their priorities? What do they actually need, you know, to be able to get done? Um, and working with them on kind of a trial and error process of what what different approaches are going to work for them. And it seems like you have a really robust toolkit to be dealing with these complex issues. So that's very commendable. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, next, can we talk a little bit about POT specifically? I know you have a lot of really great suggestions um, about treating POTS like on your um, Instagram page. And particularly, I was drawn to um, one of your um, videos with some simple exercise for getting out of bed with pots. And I just thought they were very smart. And the fact that you can do them laying on your back is very appealing to me mm -hmm. um, because of my chronic neck instability issues. Um, yes. So yeah, I guess what is your perspective on pots and the role of an occupational therapist in treating pots? Yes, I love a good challenge to make uh, everything sitting down or laying on the floor because um, it's a great way to challenge your, um, to start training the nervous system and challenge your muscles, but to not go too fast. Um, so it's, it's pretty cool how strong you can get just even from a laying down position. Um, but yes, I, um, I work with a lot of people with POTS and a lot of people with both POTS and EDS. And, um, so, you know, an example is, is like you, you saw in the video is how do I get out of bed in the morning? You know, talk about starting your day. It's pretty challenging for people when they're laying down all night and haven't drank water for hours. And so we talk about, you know, that routine, breaking it down step by step. Um, 
I do a lot of education about, you know, what is POTS? Why is this happening? And what's the reason for why we want you to, for example, wear compression or increase your salt and fluid? I think a lot of times um, medical providers don't have time to go through that in the office. You know, they're given, what, two to five minutes a lot of times. And so um, it's really nice that I get to be able to, to break down you know, what is the autonomic nervous system? What is happening with your body? And people are excited to learn about their body and to fig- to understand the mechanisms for things. And I think it, it makes them a lot more likely to follow through on things. So that's a big part of my work um, with POTS. I also do um, heart rate variability training with biofeedback. So on a computer working on breathing and your heart rate and um, your hand temperature, all these measures for your autonomic nervous system. Um, And then we look at, you know, like I mentioned before, fatigue and sleep and pain, um, school accommodations or work accommodations, um, figuring out how do we stand for longer periods of time without um, feeling sick. So, it's not that you just practice standing still for a long time. It's actually, you know, what are tr- strategies and techniques that we can use? Um, we've got, you know, a- adaptive devices that can help you to put compression socks or leggings on because what good are they if you can't even get them on and off? Um, so I let people try those and teach about, you know, I'm using an abdominal binder and just like the different levels of compression and the the reason behind them um, and get to really expand on that and work very individually one-on-one with people to understand like what is the barrier if you're not able to do these things that your doctor recommended Um, in your day-to-day life you know are you pacing why are you so fatigued are there ways we can make things simpler Um, so that's kind of a yeah, big picture of, of POTS. And um, on those, one of the other videos that I posted that I think people resonated with that relates to POTS and also hypermobility is um, I, I found out years ago that it was a lot easier to blow dry my hair if I rested my elbow on my knee. And so I would climb up onto the bathroom counter and sit on there and rest my arm on my knee. And so I took a video of um, me demonstrating this, but in a, in a stool, which is much safer. I don't recommend you climb on the, the countertop. Um, but yeah, just, you know, sitting down is helpful for saving energy. You save at least 25% of the energy doing a task if you do it sitting down. And also... It can help with shoulder instability and also the the lightheadedness a lot of people get with raising their arm overhead. If you can put your elbow, you know, just rest it on your knee that can be propped up or your leg. Um, So it's been really fun to get to um, interact with people all over the world, you know, on the, the Instagram with some of these suggestions like that one I just mentioned that my patients are so appreciative of it. It's kind of funny how they just this light bulb kind of goes off and it's like it opens up this whole world of, of creativity. You know, who says you have to stand up and hold your arm overhead to blow dry your hair? Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's so many different ways you can do things. So absolutely. And I think it's such a great um, <clears throat> reminder of the value of working with a really well-informed OT or PT who's familiar with Ehlers-Danlos in these conditions and is willing to learn because you're right. I think you mentioned like the 15 minute doctor appointments. Like we talk about that a lot on this show. Like it's a very fast paced environment. Um, you know, a lot of patients have felt, and I've experienced this where you feel like the doctor is just looking at the screen. Most of the appointment, just trying to, you know, get all their, notes done, which certainly not to blame them. I know a lot of doctors are really frustrated with that situation as well, but it's just a very limited window to discuss very complex issues. And unfortunately, issues like complications with HEDS and POTS are really complicated and don't really lend themselves to those 15-minute appointments. So it's great that OT 
um, you know, providers like you are interested in learning and being able to provide that more nuanced one-on-one, um, I was going to say instruction, but it's really, it seems like collaboration from the way you're describing it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, it's not, it's never a directive sort of style. It's intended to be very collaborative. And, and I always like to say, you know, the patient is much more likely to a fall through on something, uh, B be successful and C be able to problem solve better in the future. If they come up with the ideas on their own. Um, my job is not just to tell them, do this, do that. My job is to sort of to, yes, teach concepts, um, explore things together, and then for them really to take it home and make it their own. That's what I, that's like where the magic happens, you know, is when somebody learns something, they go home and they come back and say, okay, so you know how you told me that this would do this? Well, I did it this way. And it's like, yes, now, you know, you can tackle anything because you understand conceptually what, you know, what we're, we're looking at here. So yes, collaboration is huge. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's, that was such a great description of that process, um, from you. And it reminds me of how in, in law school we're taught, um, you're, you're really not learning quote unquote, the law as much. You're learning how to learn the law and how mm-hmm. to go about yes. approaching these complex issues. And, you know, as patients, you know, and or as individuals, as people, we're never really taught, you know, really much about how to maintain a body, let alone one that's having issues and is going awry. So I think anything that can teach patients how to seek appropriate help that they need and also how to get creative and think outside the box for treating their own conditions, um, that's tremendously empowering. Yes. Yeah. Um, so how did you initially become interested in EDS POTS and hypermobility conditions? Was it kind of a slow process or did one experience really bring it to mind for you? Yeah. So that's always the the big question, right? I think most of us who are interested in this stuff either have a condition or we met a patient and then it sort of went from there. So, um, but, but most therapists did not learn much, if anything, about EDS or POTS in school, um, and that was definitely the case for me. So as I got out into clinical practice, I saw a patient with POTS and I realized there was a huge gap in care. Um, if nothing else, like I mentioned, to educate her on her condition and reasons why you know it's important that she tries the things that her doctor recommended. Um, and um, I happened to have both of these conditions. And so I soon realized, um, you know, my personal experience coupled with my professional education, even though I was a brand new therapist, uh, I could actually make a difference for her. And um, all through school, I never even considered <laughs> seeing people with POTS or EDS. I had never seen an occupational therapist um, for either of those conditions. And so, you know, um, as I saw that one patient, I I started to consider how I might be able to help other people. And it really just snowballed from there with referrals very quickly. I was working in pediatrics and I transitioned to half and half. And now I basically just see these conditions and then I get some some hand issue, you know, some hand patients and some Parkinson's and um, chronic fatigue and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, you know, this patient population, that's sort of the way it works with word of mouth and other providers who are desperately looking for other, you know, people to help these patients. It just uh, grew really fast. <laughs> so yeah, that's, yeah. it's amazing. And I, I loved what you said earlier about how you love a good challenge. And like, it's just so clear that you've kind of leaned into the curiosity about this. And a lot of people don't do that, unfortunately, which is really troubling. But it, it's so much, there's so much hope in hearing someone that is doing this. And hopefully, you know, your approaches and the way you discuss them openly online will encourage other providers to take up more of an interest in this. You know, you're kind of 
demystifying and destigmatizing these conditions, which I think have long been thought of as very doom and gloom. There's not much we can do for these patients. And it's understandable why doctors would shy away from that because it's just, it's difficult to feel helpless, like you can't help someone. Um, And so creating and, and showing, really demonstrating how you can make improvements in people's lives with these conditions, I think is incredibly powerful for both patients and hopefully the providers that interact with it. Yeah, I hope so. It's definitely been, you know, something on my heart for the last several years to just try because I see the power in in what we can do in occupational therapy. And, um, you know, when, when you don't learn about something, it, it's scary. It's like, you know, you have to do a lot of your own research, a lot of time outside of work, and you don't want to disappoint patients. And it's definitely an easier road to not see those patients. And and, you know, some providers just struggle with um, with chronic conditions, you know, people who don't necessarily have a cure. It's um, it's very different than treating someone, you know, post-surgery or something where they come in one way and they leave another way. And so um, I, I'm definitely working to try and increase education and make it accessible for therapists to um, to be able to treat these people, especially, you know, with the incidents with long COVID going up and there's just going to be more and more, more and more people, you know, fortunately getting diagnosed, um, in terms of, you know, they know what's happening, but unfortunately, you know, the wait lists and things, there's, there's a lot of need. So. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and yeah, again, kudos to you for tackling this challenge and with such a great attitude, um, you post, it's such a fine balance to strike because Instagram particularly, um, but a lot of social media really kind of compels us to put on a happy face for things. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of, you know, that, but I feel like you're one of the um, uh, medical field workers out there who is really threading that needle of, you know, being upbeat and focusing on what we can do, but also acknowledging that this is really challenging and that people go through very real struggles. And so I think that's a difficult balance to strike and you've done a great job with it. Thank you. I hope I can continue to maintain the right balance. (laughs) Yeah, it's really, it's definitely difficult. Um, What do you see as the biggest challenges to treating hypermobility conditions, including EDS and conditions like POTS? Yeah, honestly, um, kind of on the note that you sort of just, we just went off of, but I I think working within our healthcare system, um, which you see a lot of on my Instagram, that's always a balance I'm trying to strike is, you know, our healthcare system does not traditionally serve people with invisible chronic illnesses, especially female dominant conditions. Um, And I'm not just saying that, but that's what the literature shows. And so, it makes it really hard sometimes to help people who don't have support from the system, you know, at large. So I wish that people with POTS and EDS had access to, you know, physicians or nurse practitioners, just, you know, more, more of them and longer appointments and less wait lists. um, So they could spend, you know, thorough time with them and, and who knew more about the condition um, so I, I feel like a lot of the work I do is limited by, by this, you know, this, this challenge in the system and it takes people so much energy and time just to make their medical appointments and to find the right providers. And they don't have a lot of extra energy, um, to work on the things they'd like to do. So their whole world becomes, you know, managing their healthcare and, um, and oftentimes people get stuck in this sort of sick mindset. You know, it becomes their whole identity in some cases. You know, I don't think there's any issue with that being a part of your identity. But, you know, understandably, when people have been hurt by the system, they don't have resources, it, it sort of becomes their their whole world. And, and so then we have a whole other layer added, you know, in need of healing, even outside of their physical illness. So I, I think... You know, and in talking with the providers, we have a started a providers group in, in Tucson where I live of providers from all different disciplines that special or see people with POTS and EDS. And that's been the biggest challenge that they've expressed, too, is just, you know, feeling like there's just bigger, 
bigger barriers that we are not able to conquer within our own field. And um, yeah, it just, it, it hurts my heart that that is such a big thing. Absolutely. It is incredibly frustrating and unfortunate. And um, it's unfortunately seems like it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort and sort of slowly chipping away at some long held Mm -hmm. um, beliefs and and misconceptions. Absolutely. Um, So what have you seen in terms of the opportunities in treating patients with EDS and POTS? Have you seen patients improve significantly? You know, for most patients, are you kind of working on like more of those baby step type um, smaller gains that, you know, maybe lead to bigger gains over time? Or is it incredibly varied and kind of hard to typify? Absolutely. I I think it's, I think it is definitely varied. Um, And I kind of mentioned before, you know, it'd be hard to do this job if I never saw people get better. So I think as a clinician, as you know more about a condition and you've worked with more people with it and you can help people more, it, it becomes a little more encouraging. So Um, definitely not everyone, you know, gets quote unquote better or is, you know, just has made tremendous gains. Um, but it, and, you know, and talking about the healthcare system kind of alludes to that, right. But, um, but it's amazing what can happen for some people, you know, even just like I mentioned, learning about what's going on with their body and then feeling empowered to take their health into their own hands um, it's like they just take the knowledge and, and run with it versus I think our traditional model, which is the doctor tells you what to do, you do it, you know, you depend on them and you're waiting for a cure or a fix. And, um, so the lens that we take in occupational therapy is very different. You know, it's, um, great if, if you are cured or, you know, this, this goes away, but, for now, we're looking at like your participation and your your happiness, your quality of life in day to day life, and so, um, yeah, just it's it can be it can be really awesome to see people take the tools that I give them, and um, and then they teach me all kinds of things about how to make it even better, um, you know, when when they take it home and and make it theirs. So. Uh, yeah, it's it's a huge spectrum. And often when people do amazingly well, I kind of feel like I don't know what I did that this person did so much better than this other person. And, you know, I've asked people, what do you feel like was the most helpful thing? And so I'm constantly learning um, what, you know, people take away. But I think that people are so complex mm-hmm. that it's really hard to narrow it down to any one you know, reason or cause yeah. uh, for for them doing better than others. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I know we've touched on hand conditions a little bit, um, but could you provide us with a little bit more detail about what types of issues? Um, you know, you mentioned like the thumb pain in the example patient that you gave. Um, but what are the biggest types of issues when it comes to hands in EDS? And how do you approach treating those issues? Yeah, definitely um, a pretty significant percentage of people, I can't put a number on it right now, but um, with hypermobility have hand pain. And like I mentioned, especially the thumbs um, and also the joints of the fingers. You know, you think about a typical hypermobile person and they can do all those sort of double jointed things. And um, so usually it's, it's that idea that the joint is able to go past neutral or sort of like straight Um, And instead it goes backwards or hyperextends. And over time, because we can rely on that joint to, for our strength, we stopped using our muscles. And um, so just like any other body part that we need to strengthen, we, um, you know, we need to do some stability exercises and strengthen the hands. Um, But that being said, (laughs) we use our hands all day long. And so the idea of no pain, no gain is never what we want to use for hands, especially really in general. But um, so it's it's a hard balance of, you know, doing exercises for your hands um, versus sort of modifying and compensating to get to a different baseline of, of pain level, um, hopefully decreasing, you know, consistently that your pain's a little lower. 
And so ways we might do that, like I mentioned, is making a splint. Um, I make custom splints that, you know, one type is to, for, for resting. So for example, if you sleep, maybe you, you know, bend your wrist really funky or, you know, hold your, your hand in a fisted position. Um, that's not ideal, but you don't really have much control when you're sleeping. So you can wear these splints to help your hands be in a good position. Or there's also um, functional splints. So things that can protect your joints during an activity to help you to, to stay in that neutral position and give you more um, leverage. Um, and then I also um, measure people for splints. So you can buy things like oval eight splints or those ring splints that help to keep the fingers from hyperextending. Um, and then modifications just left and right. So um, making something larger, I just posted a reel um, recently where I show um, different uh, adaptive uh, grips or pens and pencils that you can use. And so when you make something bigger, it actually makes it easier. You need less strength and less force. And so it can protect your hand and, and put it in a better position. Um, and so we use built up handles on all sorts of things, you know, or adding a lever to something. So if it's longer, you have more leverage and you need less strength. Um, in the kitchen, there's, you know, a million ways to adapt things. But um, this combination of, you know, compensating, adapting, modifying, and also rehabilitating or getting strength back, you know, being aware of proprioception, your hand and joint um, awareness so that you're, you're trying to hold your hands differently in day-to-day -day activities. There was a lot of great um, material in that, and I'm glad you mentioned the adaptive, um, uh, I guess, devices or like the pieces mm -hmm. of foam that help make um, a mm -hmm. pen more comfortable. I just heard of another um, a suggestion from a physician saying he'd heard from patients um, that the bigger gripped kitchen utensils can be helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and so these small things, um, you know, they can seem really insignificant, but in practice, they can make a huge difference. And when you're adding up, you know, little gains um, in different areas, it, that's definitely um, a, a great feeling of positive momentum. Yeah, I think that is the name of the game. And a lot of people really struggle with, you know, um, well, I don't think that's going to make that much of a difference. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's those percentages. You know, if this saves your hand by 5%, and you do that all throughout the day, you know, same with fatigue, I think um, it, it's, it, it all adds up. And so just like you mentioned, you know, it, it might seem small, but um, if you can have an open mind, you know, to really considering maybe if I'm consistent, overall, this is going to make a difference. Absolutely. I think that's a great approach and really um, has the potential to be very helpful for a lot of patients with these conditions that we've discussed. Could you tell us a little bit about the misconceptions of occupational therapy and EDS? Where do I start? <laughs> um, I think it really, it depends on the region of the country or the area in the world that you are, um, especially if there aren't many OTs. So how you mentioned people, you know, really focus on back to work. Um, there's, there's certain conditions and certain areas where OT is definitely on the team. And so if you live in an area where there aren't very many OTs, there might not be anyone seeing people with chronic conditions. Um, so I think for that reason, and just historically what OT has been, lots of people think it's only for older adults who are at risk of falling or somebody who had a stroke or brain injury and they have lost function of their hands or their arms or they're having cognitive impairment. Um, and, uh, and then also, you know, pediatric occupational therapy, which is often um, like sensory processing and those fine motor hand skills, for example, with autistic children and people with learning differences. So um, I've had patients come in and say, you know, I almost canceled this appointment because I don't want to waste your time. And I don't know if I'm in bad enough shape to see you. Um, and I, I just kind of, you know, under my mask, of course, 
just sort of smiled and said, well, let's just talk, you know, and, and let me tell me, tell me what's going on in your day-to-day life. And so, I don't know, in, in my opinion, um, if you have an impairment that's keeping you from accessing daily life like you want it to be, you know, whether it's physical, cognitive, or emotional, you have every right to have someone help you with that. Um, no one else gets to judge, you know, how bad your symptoms are. Um, and, you know, the idea of comparative suffering isn't helpful either when people say, well, I know some people with EDS have it so much worse and I should be thankful. It's, it's, it's not about that. It's just about you and your life and your therapist that you're working with. And so um, the woman I mentioned who came in and, and said she almost canceled, she left that evaluation saying, oh, I'm just so glad I came in to see you. I'm so excited for this. And I was just like, That's yes, crazy. okay. You know, I, cause, cause even I wondered in that moment, well, if you don't feel like there's not, you know, there's something that we need to do, then maybe there isn't, but she had a lot of things going on. It was very different from her, her life, you know, sort of before. And that's all that matters. It's, it's about, it's similar to when, um, you know, really, really smart people have brain injuries, like a concussion, and they're still functioning really well. Um, people can tell they're really smart, but it's not the, the same level that they were at before. And, you know, just because you think someone seems to be okay, it's, it's not about that. It's about how they perceive their function. So, um, never question whether or not you're quote unquote bad enough. You know, it's, um, it's worth, I think you, you deserve the help. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you made that point about comparative suffering, because this is another sort of pet issue of mine, because I've had a lot of um, people in my life, friends, family say, oh, I have this thing going on, but it's nothing compared to what you go through. So yes, you know, I don't yes. want to complain. And I, I often make the point, um, most things in life are relative or feel relative, but suffering is extremely personal. And, yes. you know, there's no way for me to, you know, measure the level of suffering of someone who's been, you know, pretty healthy their whole life and then has a catastrophic injury, you know, how that affects them psychologically, pain wise, you know, versus someone like me who's had a lot of injuries and a lot of surgeries and um, been in, you know, pain for a long time. And, and even if I am, you know, and, you know, many of us are, you know, in pain and have severe conditions, it doesn't take away anything or minimize anything about someone else's experience. So I, I really try to, um, you know, make that point and make the point that everyone's issues deserve, um, you know, at the point where they're impairing your life and causing you distress, um, they deserve to be addressed. And, and I think with more of that approach, um, hopefully you can help people, you know, learn strategies and tactics so they can stay doing the things they love doing for longer and hopefully avoid um, some of these, you know, complications that can arise. Yes, you've got it. I love it. So you're also a researcher. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about your research efforts and what types of research you would like to see in the future? Yes, I love talking about (laughs) my research. So um, currently I'm studying for a PhD in occupational therapy, uh, even though some days I have no idea why I'm doing this. Um, But it all started when uh, I was a student and I was a student at Mayo Clinic and launched a survey study on rehab in POTS. So I wanted to know what patients' experiences were and if they were seeing OT or PT for POTS. And so it was just to inform my in-service presentation as a student. And um, I got over 600 responses online. And um, one of the biggest autonomic neurologists brought his whole medical team to my little rehab in-service. And he was so supportive and really encouraged me, you know, you need to continue this research. There's just not enough out there about rehab in POTS. And so then I launched a more formal survey study based off of what I learned from the first one. And I got over a thousand responses and we published that data. There's multiple articles um, or manuscripts about 
Um, how many people are having falls in POTS? And it's, it's high, it's over 50%. Um, the lack of utilization of rehab services. So people are really not getting PT and OT, uh, especially not OT for, for POTS. It's about 25% get PT. Um, and then impairment in daily activities. So we asked, you know, what is your perceived level of disability basically on a, on a zero to 10 scale? And also what activities are the most affected in your daily life because of POTS? Um, so those sort of things. And, um, and then now I'm doing the analysis of data from a group study that we did. So we did an intervention um, at my uh, clinic where I work. Um, we got a, a grant from the hospital foundation, which was so great. And so people in my community got to come to these groups. They were eight weeks long. And um, it was myself and a physical therapist who we used breathing and self-compassion, education and movement. So Pilates and, um, and walking to see how it helps people um, in different ways. We looked at quality of life and um, falls and, you know, fatigue levels and um, cognition, those kinds of things. Um, so those results aren't out yet, but my plan for my dissertation is to do something similar and to make a, a curriculum to help people with POTS in rehab. Um, so I'd love, you know, for people all around the country in different community hospitals like mine or in bigger academic institutions to be able to, you know, offer group classes or one-on-one -on -one and feel really empowered. You know, this is something that helps people. Um, I know what to do and just that that would be more accessible for, uh, for patients all around the country. So... That's amazing. I'm really excited for this research, and I'm so glad that you're this interested in really trying to, um, you know, pursue um, data around what kind of approaches work and how we can get people better. I was really struck by what you said about how only 25% of patients with POTS are referred to physical therapy, and um, and that seems really low. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts on why that is? Do you think that has to do with misconceptions in the medical field about the potential role of physical therapy for conditions like this or is something else going on? I have lots of thoughts uh, because when we got those numbers, I was, I was surprised and I wasn't surprised um, how low it was. So I think that one reason is there aren't enough providers who know how to treat POTS. Um, and I think that is changing dramatically. We did that study in 2019. I think especially with COVID, um, more and more people and more and more resources you know, out there for how to treat, treat POTS in physical therapy. Um, I also think that um, providers don't uh, medical providers like physicians and nurse practitioners, they don't know who to send people to um, who know something about uh, POTS. And so, you know, it's the last thing that a provider who really cares about these patients, the last thing they want to do is send them to someone who could, you know, make them feel worse. I think there's a, a certain protection that all of us who see patients with these conditions have because there's already been, you know, so much hurt along the way in a lot of people. So, um, one way I tried to address that in my community is we created this, this group of providers that we meet once a quarter. We have a list of people who, you know, who see these patients and what they specialize in. And we all met, you know, and we all know each other and we've got people in different parts of town to refer to. And it's been really great. Um, but I think the third reason that I see is um, patients are, are fearful and understandably. Because, you know, you think physical therapy, you think exercise, and you think exercise, and you think, I'm going to pass out, I'm going to get worse, I can't even get out of bed. Yeah, right. Um, so I think that, um, you know, exercise is like one of the very best treatments that we have for POTS, um, you know, even better than, than drugs, some studies show. And, but it's, 
and but it's all about how you approach it and um you know really this very slow specific approach so yeah i think it's a lack of providers um a disconnect between the medical providers and the therapists and then you know patients just um just not really wanting to go under and understandably you know i there's no fault for that but i actually feel very strongly that that's where occupational therapy can come in because there's so many things I can do that aren't exercise. And I mean, you know, I can start with some very, very simple exercise, but, um, you know, get a patient to a different place where then they feel more confident seeing a physical therapist. So. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that all makes a lot of sense. Um, I know that hypermobility conditions can encompass a broad range of levels of functionality, symptoms, and comorbidities like POTS. Um, and we've talked a little bit about your different perspectives, um, but are there any other tips or tricks that you found that seem to resonate with a large portion of these patients? Um, or is, is it really more of an individual matter? Yeah, it's, it is very individualized to what matters to the patient, um, you know, and what their challenges are and the reason for those challenges, right? Like someone could have fatigue, but there's 10 different reasons why you could have fatigue. So, um, but, but there are some overarching, uh, tips and tricks, I think. So, um, for example, compression is great for POTS and also for joint stability, um, in a lot of people, um, but like I mentioned before, if you're so fatigued, like you're not going to be able to get the the compression socks or stockings on. So it's not doing me any good. And so, you know, learning ways to modify, to get the compression on, including abdominal compression um, and, and practicing that. I think people really appreciate, you know, those kinds of tips. Um, and I also think for hypermobility, even with people who don't have pain, I think that learning different ways to adapt writing utensils or faucets or, you know, how to open a jar, I do like to at least introduce people to these concepts because especially like the teenagers that I see, some of them might not have hand pain, but it's not unlikely that if they continue to strain, I don't want to say that for sure they're going to have pain, but it's a good idea to sort of learn how to, you know, use those joint protection principles. So um, I'm trying to share, you know, some of those things on the Instagram to help people. Um, I think, you know, sleep is another sleep strategies are pretty universal, but it often takes one-on-one therapy to actually make them happen and for it to work effectively. Um, That's what I found because, you know, people tell me, oh, I've, I've learned all these sleep hygiene things before. I've read the book. I've, you know, whatever. But I don't, I think that you really have to problem solve on a case by case basis. Like what is going on um, in your specific life and how do we implement these strategies for you? Um, But yeah, yeah. Are there any last parting thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with today, either about occupational therapy or people living with EDS, POTS, or other hypermobility conditions? Um, I think that overall, I would encourage people to approach things, um, you know, experiences or um, tools with curiosity. Um, We can sometimes get so stuck in our routines and the way that we do things, or even our mindsets, you know, can really bog us down. But if you try and think about flying over, you know, zooming out, taking a step back and watching the situation from afar, you can consider like, what, what could I learn from this? You know, or, or think about if a friend was going through this, what would I tell them? And so I think having a therapist or a trained professional to bounce ideas off of can be really um, sort of like everyday magic, you know, simple day-to-day things. But if you don't have someone, try and just think about, you know, being curious, just taking a different lens or perspective on what it could look like. That's Those are great parting thoughts. Um, and I, I agree. I think that's a very healthy perspective for, the, for these conditions that can be so complex and so daunting. 
Um, and yeah, I think it's just great how you um, break things down and are trying to investigate um, how to make life a little bit um, a little bit more fulfilling and a little bit more um, rewarding for people. So I really commend your approach. I think it's um, it's really very enlightened and I, I look forward to see what the future holds with your, your research and all of your endeavors. Um, and thank you so much for joining us today. I really learned a lot and we appreciate you taking the time to give us your perspective on the role of occupational therapy in the treatment of patients with EDS and other hypermobility conditions. Thank you, Carrie. This was a lot of fun. And thank you for all the work that you do to help this community, the patients, their family members, and even um, healthcare providers. We we all really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. Wow, that's much appreciated. Um, <laughs> that's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. If you enjoy these episodes, please leave us a review. It helps others to learn about the podcast. And always feel free to email us at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com if you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episode topics. Thanks, and see you next time. Bye.